Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. When Paul says, study to show yourself approved a workman who rightly divides the word of truth, that's a little power-packed verse there. He said, number one, study to show yourself approved. If you want to be approved of God, then learn to study, do the hard work of study. He said, a workman who needs not be ashamed. Uh, Study is hard work. We want to lend ourselves our mind. We want to love the Lord our God with all our minds and lend our mind to the study of the word so God can speak to us. If you want to know God, if you want to grow in God, you've got to grow in your knowledge. The fact is you can't grow if you don't grow in your know. (laughs) You got to know in order to grow. First Peter chapter one, it's very clear. Grace and peace be unto you through your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The conduit of grace in your life is a growth of knowledge. If you're going to grow, your understanding is going to grow. And if your understanding doesn't grow, then you've got a lid on your life. And so if you want to grow in God, you've got to have a hunger to understand more of the things of God. And one of the manifestations of that hunger is that you, you begin to have a, a, a lifestyle of tearing into the word and asking God to reveal himself to you. And so we need to have that hunger. We need to be workmen who show ourselves approved. But then he says this, who rightly divide the word of truth. We talked about last week how there's a number of different translations that translate that passage rightly handling the word of truth. And although that's not a, a violation of Paul's intent, it is, they took their liberty to redefine the word. Literally, the word means to divide. It has the idea of one slice, a sharp cut where you just slice between two, two cuts of meat. And a, a highly uh, skilled butcher knows right where to cut to get the, the, the premium value out of that piece of meat. And we need to be those who rightly divide the word of truth. Most translations say rightly handle, and yeah, that is what Paul was talking about. But literally, he said to divide the word of truth. What is he talking about? The implication is you can wrongly divide the word of truth. And the subject we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we're not going to get into this other than for just me to do a little review, and that is we were talking about how uh, we are, that, that Jesus paid it all for you and I to come into relationship with God. And in that sense, Jesus paid the price. It's the finished work of Christ. He paid it all, and all I do is I receive. In that context, I am a recipient. But there's another context in Scripture that we need to also be aware of. And in this context, Paul makes statements like, I fellowship with him in his sufferings. I fill up in my body that which remains of the sufferings of Christ. Over here, Jesus paid it all. Over here, we're talking about we pay a price for our walk with God. Over here, Jesus paid for you and I to come into redemption. Over here, you and I pay a price to be effectual in ministry. If you want the anointing of God on your life, if you want to be effective in releasing the kingdom on other people's lives, you need to learn to pay the price for yourself. 
And most of us don't think that way. And a lot of times we bump into this when we begin to talk about things like fasting and prayer, sacrificial giving, and laying our life down for others. People put up their hand and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I don't have to do that. Jesus paid it all. And what they've done is they've taken a valid truth of redemption and hijacked that truth and brought it into the context of ministry where that truth is no longer true. And we've got to rightly divide. There's a difference between redemption and ministry. Us receiving what Jesus did and us participating with him. On this one, we're a recipient. Over here, we are our participant. And there is a price to be paid for ministry. And if we don't understand that, then we hijack this receiving mode and we put it over here and we become apathetic and ineffectual. And so if you want to be effective, you need to understand that in this context, you are a participant, you fill up in your body that which remains of the sufferings of Christ, you fellowship with him in his sufferings, and there's a price that you pay for ministry. Does that make sense? And so we've got to rightly divide. And if we don't make that division, if we don't make that distinction, we get into error with the truth. It's a truth, but that's no longer true in a new context. And we need to understand that. And so I want to kind of continue in that vein this morning, and I want to look at something because we began to touch on something yesterday, and I felt such heat on it from the Holy Spirit. I want to revisit this. And so I want to look at in the book of Ephesians and a helpful little outline of our relating with God, our relating with man, and our relating with the enemy. And all three of those facets of our relationships are reflected in the book of Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask this morning, God, that you would speak to us, you would strengthen us, Lord, that you would provoke us to hunger, and Lord, I'm asking that you would equip us to be effectual. In Jesus' name, amen. I should say effective. Effectual is an old King James word. Uh, to be effective. It... Uh, Anybody ever read any books by Watchman Nee? Wave at me. Anybody ever read anything? Anybody ever read the book Sit, Walk, Stand by Watchman Nee? Great little book. Just a tiny little book you can fit in your back pocket. It's called Sit, Walk, Stand, and it's Watchman Nee's study on the book of Ephesians. And uh, Watchman Nee was a, a church planter, a, really an apostolic leader in China. Uh, his name was Neto Sheng. And uh, so, which was translated, Watchman Nee, and uh, he was, uh, you know, around the, uh, his ministry was very strong back in the 40s, the 50s. He ended up spending many years in a communist prison camp and died in the early 70s. Really only wrote one book in his life, but there's a lot of books attributed to his ministry because there were people that would transcribe his spoken sermons, and then there was a missionary that really made it his mission in life to, to capture all those and put those out, and one of those books is uh, Sit, Walk, Stand. And in this wonderful book, Sit, Walk, Stand, Watchman Nee talks about our relationship with God, our relationship with man, and our relationship with the enemy from the book of Ephesians. Now, if you've ever read anything by Watchman Nee, sometimes he can be a little hard for people to understand. I know some people are very challenged by him, and then other people, their mind works in such a way they just love Watchman Nee. Uh, I've experienced both. I've got to be in a certain mood to, to consume him, but when I get in those moods, I love the guy. The only problem I have with Watchman Nee is once I've read his version of something, it's hard to see it any other way because he's such a brilliant Bible teacher. 
And so in the book, Sit, Walk, Stand, he talks about how in Ephesians chapter 2, well, Ephesians chapter 1, it says that, uh, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Chapter 2, it says we are seated with him. And so our first posture in our relationship in the universe, our relationship with heaven, our relationship with God, is a seated position. It's not something we work for. It's something that Jesus purchased for us, and all the weight is borne upon the throne. Jesus purchased our salvation. And so in regards to my relationship with God, it's a seated position. There ain't a whole lot of work when I'm seated. Matter of fact, I like how John put it. We need a heartland nap. Amen. Everybody in favor? I, that was a heartland nap. It, uh, we're, we're in a seated position. We're relating with God out of that rest. But then you go to chapter 4, and uh, the NAS, the King James Version, both translate the word very accurately, that now I, I beseech you, brethren, to walk worthy of the call that you have received. So whereas in chapter 2, we're seated with him in heavenly places, then he begins to talk about our walk among men. Whereas seat, our seated position has to do with how we relate with God, our walking has to do with how we relate with man. And so whereas our relationship with God, there's no progress, there's no effort. We're just seated and we receive it as a gift. That is the correlation of what we were talking about last week. Jesus paid it all. But when it comes to walking this thing out before man, there is work. Walking takes effort and it denotes progress. We are going somewhere with this thing. And if you look at chapter 4, he begins to get into our relationship with our fellow man. And there is room for progress in gr and growth in our relationship with man. And we need to understand that. Because if the only lens that you have to view your walk is the seated position, again, you're going to undermine your effectiveness. There's a price to pay in your walk with man. I have an obligation to walk this thing out before my fellow man. Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 4, it, it says, uh, make every effort or make haste to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's taking some work. That means i got to swallow my pride sometimes. i got to keep my big mouth shut to guard the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I've got to be brave in my communication so that we can keep peace and guard peace. We're not, we're, 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 we're uh, Jesus called us peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're out there to make peace, not keep peace. Because if you try to be a peacekeeper, you're not going to have peace. What you're going to do is relinquish the ground that God gives to you. We need to fight for relationship. And that all is part of our walk with God or with man. And then we get into Ephesians chapter 6, and he says this. He says, put on the full armor of God and stand. And in the evil day, when you've done all else, stand. So in regards to God, our relationship with the Lord, we're resting. We're in a seated position. We were born on the throne. The fact is, Adam and Eve's first day was the day of rest. God labored for six days. On the sixth day, he made man. And the first full day, what did Adam wake up to? The Sabbath. He had nothing to rest from. He hadn't worked yet. But that's where we begin. We begin from the seated position. But that seated position then launches us into a walk before man. 
And we need to understand that our walk before man takes effort. We're expected to make progress. We're to, we're, we're to have that unity of the Spirit. You know what unity is? Corporate humility. We're going to walk in humility with one another. And there's progress to that thing. We're growing up into Him. When you look in chapter 1 and 2 of Ephesians, it's talking about our relationship with God, what God has given to us. When you get to chapter 4, it's talking about what we do before man, that we have to deny ourselves. It says, you who steal, steal no longer. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. There's effort that goes into this thing. And then we get to chapter 6, and it's our relationship with the enemy, and we take our stand. That means we don't give up any ground. It's a military word. Literally means you stand your ground, you don't give an inch. In the evil day, when everything is coming against you, and the enemy is trying to get you to step off the ground that God has given you, you take your stand. You refuse to give up an inch. Outlast the enemy. Now we need to understand, these, these principles are progressive. Our walk with God starts with God in a seated position. And if we don't have, the, if we're not secure in our, our relationship with the Lord, it's going to sabotage us in our relationship with our fellow man. And the fact is, if you fudge on your relationship with your fellow man, it's going to come back and begin to mess with your relationship with God. Because John was very clear. How can you say you love God whom you don't see when you don't love your fellow man whom you do see? What he's insinuating is that your relationship with the... This is going to be painful, okay? Your relationship with the person you love the least is a good indication of where you're really at with God. Let's let that sink in for a moment. How can you claim to love God whom you don't see when you, love, when you don't love your fellow man whom you do see. It's what he's saying. I don't fully understand. I, I wouldn't have come to that conclusion. Problem is, I wasn't the one inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it. And so let God be true and every man a liar. The fact is, our relationship with those who we do see is indicative of our true relationship with God. And so your love for God will manifest itself in your love for man. And your love for man is a good indication of your love for God. And we need to understand that. So my seated position is walked out before man. There's an outflow of that. And the fact is, if you don't learn to seat, be seated in a secure position in relating with God, then it's going to sabotage you and your ability to stand before the enemy. You'll never be able to stand until you first learn to sit. You're never going to be able to stand in the day of the fiery temptation unless you are secure in your relationship with God. Because one of the enemy's primary tools against us is to be the accuser of the brethren. He will accuse you and try to get you off the ground of your secure relationship with God. And so we need to be secure in that relationship. We need to be rooted and established in love, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3. We need to learn to be rooted and established in love because of the blood of Christ. The book of Revelation where it speaks of the enemy as the accuser of the brethren, it says that we have, a wep we have weapons of warfare that are all used towards the enemy. 
It says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life unto the death. All three of those are crucial elements of us staying secure in our relationship with the Lord in the evil day when all hell comes against us. Ephesians 6 is very clear. There are some days that are more evil than others. You ever had one of those? There are some days when it seems all hell breaks loose. And what do we hold to? The blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and we love not our life unto the death. The blood of the Lamb is the foundation. We enter into that secure relationship because of the blood of the Lamb. And if you have a grasp of the blood, the enemy cannot get you off the ground of your security in Christ because you understand that the blood answers to God for what God requires of you. Scripture is very clear that the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. What life is in Christ's blood? It's the life that he lived and he obeyed God on every principle. That's why when it says in Philippians that Jesus was obedient unto death, comma, even the death of the cross. The idea is that that final act of obedience. He fulfilled what he told his cousin, John the Baptist. He said, I must fulfill all of righteousness. What is he talking about? God had a standard for man to meet. In order to be right with God, we needed a perfect life. You and I obviously blew that. And so Jesus came and lived a righteous life. He fulfilled all of righteousness. And the final act of obedience was obedience unto death, even the shameful death on the cross. So when Jesus said to, the, to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, what he's saying is this, this, this final act of obedience, I submit to this death and I trust you as I hurtle into eternity. I've taken the sin of man upon me. Now, because I've absorbed that sin, now I'm deserving of hell, but Father, I'm trusting you. I'm trusting your judgment on me to overturn this thing. And he yielded unto death, even the death of the cross. And in the resurrection, that there was an appeal made to the supreme court of heaven. And Jesus, in the hell, and, and the, 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 the cell in hell. Now, so that's controversial. Some people believe that Jesus didn't literally go to hell. I personally think he did. I wouldn't arm wrestle you over it, okay? We'll find out someday. But Jesus, uh, Jesus in hell, was appealed to the supreme court. And God resurrected him from the dead. And now that blood speaks on our behalf. And so when I fail, when, when the enemy has some ground to accuse me, when I'm over here in the evil day and all hell's coming against me and the enemy's reminding me what a bonehead I was and that what I should have done and what I shouldn't have done and he's condemning me, I, I don't take a stand on my own righteousness. I don't try to go into my, my walk and say, well, yeah, but look what else I did. I did these good things, and that kind of balances the scale. I'm never going to get anywhere doing that. I don't argue my righteousness. I don't, on the evil day when I'm trying to stand, I don't argue my walk. I argue my seated position. That Jesus paid the price. That I am seated in heavenly places. Not because of what I did, but because of what he did. 
It's what it means in, in Matthew 5 where it says, when you're on, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Lawn, he said, when you're on, on your way, your adversary is taking you to court, agree with him quickly. It's kind of an interesting passage. When you're on your way to court and there's someone dragging you into court, agree with him. Who's our adversary? The accuser. He says, don't argue your own righteousness. Don't say, yeah, I know I, I, I kicked the cat, but I was really nice to the dog. And that kind of, you're not going to get anywhere there. You have nothing to stand on in the place of your walk. You've got to appeal to your seated position that the, the blood of Jesus answers for me to God. And so when I come before God and the enemy's accusing me and saying, look, you should have done this and you shouldn't have done that, and, and just accusing me and undermining my confidence, trying to attack my confidence, because if he can get me off my seated position, I'll never be able to stand. So I need to learn to use this precious weapon called the blood of Christ. How do we use the blood? And, and it's very clear in that passage, it's used towards the enemy. We wield it as a weapon against the enemy. We don't argue with them. We agree with them. Yeah, you know what? I'm not what I should be. But that's not the issue. Because it's not what I did or didn't do that makes the difference. I am right with God because of what Jesus did. And the one thing God requires of me to come into His presence and live there in a secure position is a perfect life. And I've got it in a bowl of blood. Because Jesus fulfilled every righteous requirement of the Father. And I remind the enemy of that. I take, you know, sometimes it, it, it's good to just kind of imagine things, you know, kind of get a picture in your head and you take the enemy and make him look at that bowl of blood in your face with amazing grace. Look at that. Every righteous requirement. Jesus overcame every temptation and make him stare at that thing. Our righteousness is in Christ. But the fact is, it's easy to preach that, but it's harder to live that at times especially early on in our walk with God. What I just shared with you, to me, was a life-changing, revolutionary revelation that I got about five years into my walk with God. And that first five years was absolute hell because I was trying to live for the Lord out of my own righteousness. And I remember laying on the, the floor in my dorm room in Bible school just weeping and said, God, I'm done. I can't do this Christianity thing. I, I cannot do it. I'm not, I'm not strong enough. I'm not disciplined enough. I don't, I don't love you enough to pull this thing off. And I felt so condemned. And the enemy was using my own sincerity against me. See, if I wasn't sincere, my failures wouldn't have bothered me. But it was because I cared. It was because he'd hooked my heart and forgiven me of so much. I wanted to please him. And the enemy leveraged that sincerity and began to condemn me. But because I didn't understand the gospel, that Jesus purchased it for me. And now I enter the most holy place, boldly before the throne of grace, by the blood of the Lamb. The righteous requirement was paid for me. He paid the entry fee. A perfect life. And when I, when I realized that, there was a stability that began to enter into my Christian walk. That's where this thing begins. The early stages of our walk with God is where God begins to get us off the ground of self-righteousness. 
and on the ground of his righteousness. Because the fact is, on the days I was doing good, I felt good. But the, the, the mistakes were going to be right around the corner as long as I was trusting in my own righteousness. And because God had done a work in my life, it wasn't so much the things I was doing I shouldn't do anymore. God delivered me from those things. But the enemy would just hang this thing over my head, what I should be doing. More fasting, more prayer, more reading the Word, more all this stuff, and I couldn't live up to it. And it created a despair in my heart. I'm telling you, God wants you to be secure in your seated position. Because when you have that safety net, when you're learning to... Swing on the trapeze of truth. And you're learning to live the Christian walk. And you're, you're learning to walk with Him. When you fail, there's that safety net. It's His righteousness. It's not that we one day graduate to approaching Him on our own righteousness. That's not what I'm saying. But see, when we really believe we're made righteous by His grace, then we're not so susceptible to temptation. Turn with me to Romans 8 real quick here. Let's look at something. Romans chapter 8. Didn't plan on getting into this, but this is important for us to understand. Romans chapter 8. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. Now just stop there. See, the law can't make you holy. Not because the law is deficient. Be careful, because the law is God's word. And I hear people talking about the law as though it's some kind of evil thing or silly thing. No, it's, it's an expression of the character, the justice of God. The problem with the law wasn't the law. The problem with the law was us. That it was weakened by our sinful nature. It says it right there. So what the law was powerless to do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirements of the law may be fully met in us. Listen to this. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the secret to bringing forth fruit that's righteous, not just not the legal righteousness that Jesus purchased for us, but the living righteousness that comes from us. Okay? When we're first saved, when I got saved, I was made holy. I got radically saved. I met Jesus. I was a homeless alcoholic. This lady led me to the Lord. And I got I had a radical encounter with God and I was saved. She gave me money to go out and buy a new Bible, and I used it to buy a keg. And I sat there and drank beer crying because the only difference between before I got saved and now that I was saved is, wasn't my behavior, it was my, it was my reaction to my action. Before, I would have been laughing. Boy, I pulled one over on her. Now, after I'm saved, my conscience was smiting me, and I didn't want to do these things, but I was still bound to my flesh. I felt guilty. So even though I was legally righteous on paper in heaven, God pull out my file, he's righteous, no sin there. 
If you looked at my lifestyle, you would have said I was anything but because I was still struggling with sin. And so what happened? I had to, when I'm settled on my legal position, then my living condition begins to grow. But if I'm looking to be secure in my living condition, I will never be secure in that. That's what Romans 7 is all about. Romans 6 says, you are dead. Romans 7 says, you ain't acting it. You ain't acting like you're dead. Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. He's struggling. And then Romans 8, he breaks into the victory over the flesh. And the secret is he walks by the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit living within us that helps us live up to the righteous requirements of the law as a living condition and not simply a legal position. Now, there was a sense as I've never been made more righteous than the moment I got saved. But there's another sense in which I'm a whole lot more righteous in my behavior than the day I got saved. And both are a reality in Scripture. Matter of fact, there's an interesting little verse in Hebrews that said, those who, are, those who were, made ho- those who were uh, sanctified are being made holy. It has both tenses. I was made righteous in salvation, and I'm being made righteous in my sanctification. I'm, I'm, God's doing a work in me and bringing that behavior up to par. Now, here's what, here's what I wanted to read out of this passage. Listen to what it says in verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh, what? Have their minds set on what the flesh desires. See, condemnation locks your, fl- your mind on the things of the flesh. Condemnation captures your mind with fleshly things. When I was living under condemnation because I didn't understand the blood of Jesus, I didn't understand how to wield it towards the enemy and defeat him with the blood of Jesus, I would argue my righteousness with him and I'd lose every time because I was trying to base it on my behavior. And he could always find something I shouldn't have done that I did or I didn't do that I should have done. So I needed to get back and I needed to use the blood of Jesus, the settled work of Christ, as my weapon to defeat him. But when I'm living under condemnation, it it would bind my mind to my failures in the works of the flesh. And when I'm I'm locked in there, I'm going to simply perpetuate those things again and again. They who walk after the flesh mind the things of the flesh. And they who walk after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. And condemnation is one of the primary ways the enemy gets you to lock your mind on fleshly things. And so what we need to do is understand the blood of Jesus which pulls the rug out from underneath the enemy because we're no longer standing on our own righteousness, we're standing on the righteousness of Christ. And it undermines condemnation. I don't have to live there. My identity is not based on what I did or didn't do, so I'm not condemned. My identity is based on what Jesus did. Does that make sense? And so we need to learn how to use the blood of Jesus. And we have, then we have that security. And once we get to the place where we begin to be secure in our relationship with God, when, let me put it this way, your maturity in Christ initially is measured not so much by your actions, but by your reactions to your actions. In the early stages of maturity, it's not so much what you didn't or didn't do as much as it is what you do when you didn't do what you should have done or did do what you shouldn't have. When you can 
still walk into God's presence with boldness. And I'm not talking arrogant, like, like it doesn't matter how we behave. I'm not talking about living in a way, such a way that would grieve the Spirit. But when we fail and we can get back up and we don't buy into this lie, I've got to spend time in the penalty box for a while. That I can come boldly before the throne of grace to find the help in the time of need. You, you, that's a sign, okay, I'm moving into maturity. And I'm telling you, when that happens, your living condition, which tends to be up and down in the early stages, will begin to level out and you'll begin to grow in God. But it starts with your relationship with Him. And the enemy on the evil day will try to get back here and attack your seated position. And if he can attack your seated position, he'll cripple your walk before man and you will back down in the day where you're supposed to stand. So it starts over here, but then once you are secure in your legal position, then you begin to grow in your living condition. And that has to do with your walk with man. The way we live with one another is crucial. And there's a whole lot of facets to this, but the one I want to really stress this morning is that when we are family together, when we are called, God calls people to tribal affiliation. He calls you to be a part of a kingdom family. Many of us have experienced this. You'll go to a church and you'll think, man, this is a great church. They got great music. They got, they, they, man, they, they, they got good teaching, good preaching. They, you know, the people are friendly, but it just, it's like, you just don't feel like it's just exactly a good fit. And you walk into another place and the music may not be as good and the preaching may not be as good, but it's like, there's something, this is home. This, this is what I've been looking for. Why? That's that thing. God's calling you to a tribe of people and you're calling your effectiveness, your being who you're called to be is connected to you being that with a bunch of other people called to the same thing. And my point here this morning is we need you to step up and be who you are called to be. Because if you don't step up and be who you are called to be, we don't get to get there either. That's bad English, but good preaching. If we want to get where we need to go, we get there together. You know, when you have your seated position, okay, you got your personal relationship with God. That's wonderful. Hallelujah. But when you're talking about a walk, you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. We have a corporate relationship with Jesus and one another. And you can't get where you need to go in your living condition unless you're doing it with other people. Your growth your maturity is connected to you being able to walk it out with other people. We all seem real mature when we're alone. I'm telling you, I was extremely mature until I got married. I was a very patient person. I didn't have an anger problem. But there was something about my wife. You know, I mean, I was a good guy. No, it, it, there, there was a selfishness God had no access to until all of a sudden I had a woman putting a demand on me. And then we made babies, which made it worse, you know, because at least I could leave her in the other room. The kids would just cry and scream, and we called, we called our twins the screaming meanies. I mean, they would exhale or inhale about 8 p.m. and exhale till about 8 a.m. I mean, up all night. And God was getting at things in me through that process. 
Your growth in God demands you learn to run with a group of people. And you work through your issues with those, that group of people. And you work through your selfishness. And you, there's misunderstandings. And we have brave communication. And fight through that so we can reestablish unity. And if you can't get there, if every time you get in a, an argument with someone, you go find another church, you are sentencing yourself to immaturity. We need to learn to run with people for years on end. And together we grow up. There's a beautiful thing called corporate maturity. Man, I'm hungry for that. I don't want to just grow as an individual in God. I want to grow with a group of people where we are farther along than we were last year as a group of people. Where as a group of people, we are, we're, we're moving into things that God has longed to release into the earth. There's a fullness of God, and it's very clear in this passage of Ephesians 4, that He will not release to the individual. There are things in God you'll never get in your seated position. You may have them legally, but it's still just a potential reality and not a present reality until you begin to live with other people in this thing. And when we're running together, listen, listen to the language used in Ephesians 4. Let's turn there. Ephesians 4, real quick, and we'll, we'll close with this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I, li- I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. Now listen, he's talking about all these great things God's given us, and now in chapter 4, he starts to start meddling with us. He gets nosy and, and puts his nose into our business. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one faith. When you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captive and gave gifts to his people. He who ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself equipped, uh, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip people for works of service. Why? So the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You cannot touch the fullness of Christ. You can touch the fullness of the Spirit as an individual. But this is a whole different deal here. The fullness of Christ is connected to your ability to run with people in unity. To work through problems. It's really kind of funny. If you were to look at our background, some of us, there's no way we would have hung out with each other. Seriously, there's no way we would have hung out with each other. And now we'd be brethren, you know. And what's co- what we have in common is Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And God will intentionally put people in your life you wouldn't have run with before Jesus so that you have to deal with some things and adjust some things. And some of the greatest things God wants to give us are hidden behind the personalities, the very ones that you wouldn't have hung out without Jesus. And with that, listen to what he says. He says, 
God gave these gifts, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. But it's a corporate thing. It's not individual maturity. So we have some people growing into maturity and some not. No. He's saying that the purpose of the ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, is to equip the body for the work of ministry. It's not that apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are supposed to do the work of the ministry. They do the equipping, and the people do the ministry. And when that happens, the body builds itself up. We all find our niche, our place of service, and when we find our place of service, we're serving one another, all the needs are met, and we all begin to grow together. Your destiny the fullness of what you long for is connected to the tribe of people you're called to run with. And if you forfeit those relationships, you forfeit the fullness God wants to give to you. And so we need to have this hunger to really run with a group of people, to do life together, to do relationship, to really work through things. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.